This past week, Jen and I had the chance to, uh, to go away for a, a night out, and uh, we enjoyed that actually two-day event, an overnight, um, about an hour away. We were looking forward to that for about two months and got that time to, to go spend some time together. And on the way home from our little trip away, um, uh, about two miles from home, my car began to shake, sputtle, sputter, and rattle, and smell bad. And the check engine light started flashing, which usually, all in all, is not the good thing. Uh, thankfully, we were only two miles from home and not about 60 from where we started our journey. And so I coasted, because it's a manual transmission, I coasted as far as I could down the road that we were on, and, uh, and then began the slow climb up Mount Vernon Road, which is our little hill, about a 700-foot elevation by the time we get home. And, uh, man, that thing was just chugging along like this, and the check engine light is flashing like, this is not normal, this is not right, and I smell like burnt, burnt smell coming from the engine. And... So you know how mechanical I am, so immediately I knew it was wrong. <laughs> and uh, you know, we get home, we finally limp home, and I, I coast into the garage, and I'm like, oh, let's just unload the stuff. I come out, and I pop the hood, and, uh, and I come back in after Jen knew that I was out in the garage. She said, well, did, what did you find out? I said, well, normally when I open the hood of the car, I can tell right away what's wrong. This time, however, I didn't quite tell. I don't, I don't know what's wrong. I don't even know why I popped the hood. What's that going to do for me, right? <laughs> So I do what I do better, right? I go online and I begin to search what the problem is. And here's, here's the thing. I finally learned that the symptoms seem to indicate that I have an ignition coil failure. Isn't that neat? Now, to me, I didn't know what that meant because I didn't have any context for that. And so I then went uh, further online and I began to see what does this actually mean? Like, is this a your car is a dead event, or is this like a spark plug? Like, how significant is this? And I learned that it's actually fairly easy to fix. And so what I did is because I wanted to see somebody fix it, I went to YouTube or whatever, and I Googled it, and I found someone actually changing an ignition coil in an 03 Jetta, which is what I have. I'm like, this is amazing. I get to see what I'm supposed to do. This is perfect for me. And so this afternoon, I'm going to change the ignition coil in my Jetta. I'm so excited. Aren't you excited for me? Yeah? Yeah, thank you. Small potatoes for me, all right? But a big win for mankind right here. So here's the deal. Isn't this, though, the way life works, that, that when we are um, on, on mission or we have a mission, we have something we're supposed to do. Like my mission when the car is broken is simple. Fix it. Fix the car. And I don't know how to fix the car until I begin to do a little bit of work on how in the world do I get this thing working. And then when I figure out this ignition coil... I need to go beyond that and say, I don't even know what to do with that. Like, how big a deal is that? I need to see somebody do something with that that will help me know what I'm supposed to do. And in many ways, here at Grace Point Church, when we talk about what our mission is, what our purpose is, we talk about developing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, which all sounds good, but if we're honest... There are times in life when we do the same thing my car did this week and we just kind of sputter and start and stop and things smell wrong and it just doesn't seem right and it's like the check engine light of our spiritual life is kind of flashing in front of us like this isn't quite right, I'm not sure why, this doesn't feel right but I don't know where to go, I don't know how to navigate this relationship, I don't know how to navigate where I should be going, I don't know how to read God's will here, I don't know what he really wants me to do and it's not functioning smoothly and yet we're supposed to be coming more and more like Jesus, if that's, you know, where you have committed your, your life to. And so what do we do? And we're, this is why we're in this series that we're in called A Thousand Words, because a picture is worth a thousand words. And what we want to give to you is a picture, just like I got the picture of um, the YouTube deal, a picture of what it looks like to change ignition. We want to give to you 
some pictures of what Jesus gave to his followers to kind of show them, hey, along the way, when life kind of hits you with stuff and the ignition coil goes down and you have the light flashing in front of you and things aren't working quite right, I want to give you some pictures, not just some principles to live by, but I want to show you some pictures of how to live well and what it means to actually do what you say you want to do if you want to follow Jesus Christ. So this is kind of the series. We are uh, in the second part of a seven-part series studying the parables of Jesus, seven parables that he gave. Uh, And this parable this morning um, is going to be so common to you that you actually already know the point of what I'm going to say. Isn't that neat? And yet I'm going to say it anyway. The, The parable this week is similar, similar to last week's point, but a little bit different. Last week we looked at the parable of the wine skins and the clothing and Jesus point at a at a wedding feast that you don't pour new wine into old wineskins because the old wineskins will burst. And we mentioned, made this point last week, that God has always been in the business of drawing near to those who are far from him, that we believe this was a point of that parable that he told last, last week in our, in our study. This week we're going to do something different. We're going to go to a, a new parable, and this parable is so familiar that it, it, it's... Um, if you've never been in church, if you're not even a church person, if you've never even picked up a Bible, you have probably heard about this parable. This parable has um, received modern-day marketing. We will use it in, um, in any kind of story when we're trying to talk about someone being especially kind and going out of their way to help somebody else. And some of you are already like, yeah, I know where you're going. It's a parable of the good Samaritan. Right, parable of Good Samaritan. And you know the point of the Good Samaritan already. It's a story you've heard over and over again. And so what am I going to add to you this morning? Why even go into a story that you all know so much? And here's, here's what I think. For most of us, the problem is not needing to know more. For most of us, the problem is needing to know what to do with what we know. Okay. Like, yesterday was Valentine's Day, right? None of us men needed to know that. We just needed to know what to do with what we knew, right? The challenge wasn't, oh, I forgot it was Valentine's Day. If you did, that was a whole other issue, all right? (laughs) For most people, you know it. The challenge is, what do I do with what I know? How do I take my no and turn it into know-how? What does wisdom of uh, the application of knowledge look like? And this is how I feel every time it comes time to give a gift to somebody is I don't know how best to do what I want to do to show care and, and love to them. I don't know what that will look like. And so this morning, the issue on the table is not knowing the parable of the Good Samaritan. The issue that I want to talk with you about is what do I do with what I think I know. And ironically, that is the very same issue that the lawyer in our story began to question Jesus about. So the parable of the Good Samaritan, to be honest with you, I find a home. I find a connection with the guy who sets up the story even more than any of the characters in it. 
because there's a lawyer who sets up the whole story. And with him, I think we, if we're honest, we can find a connection with this guy. So let's go to him, and we'll learn a little bit from him, and then we'll learn about the parable as well. Luke chapter 10, if you have your Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in the pew around you. Um, And if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you, by the way. We'd be glad to have you take that uh, from here and keep that as your own. Luke chapter 10. Luke is the third, um, what we call gospel or book in the New Testament. Um, Our New Testament book, starting in the right third of your Bible, goes Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Um, Luke is a doctor uh, who wrote an account with an attempt to try to help people understand the logical kind of progression of Jesus' life on this earth. And so he's very direct and clear in what he talks about, all right? So Luke chapter 10, uh, the parable begins in verse 30, but we're going to back up to verse 25 to set the stage for the parable. And here we go. Uh, I'm reading from the New International Version. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, you've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? All right, I'm going to pause it here because there's so much going on here. This guy, you should know, is um, a lawyer or a teacher of the law, and he begins in a very respectful way to kind of stand up and talk to Jesus. Now, you have to imagine there's other people around Jesus at the time. The context sets that before verse 25. This is Jesus and other people, and this lawyer gets up to begin to ask Jesus a question, which was appropriate for a student to do because the teacher is seated and you get up to ask your question, just like I did in, in grade school in Barbados. You stand up in respect of the teacher. So in respect, the smart kid in the back of the classroom stands up, is ready to ask a question. Now, the question is a setup. The question is not a legitimate question. The question is, I have knowledge and I want to test you on it, is really the question. We know the mood of the lawyer because... It's, Luke tells it to us, that he asks a question to test Jesus. You see that right in there in verse 25. He stood up to test Jesus. This wasn't a legitimate request. And he asks a question, and then look at what it says. What must I, what's that next word? Do. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Not what must I know, but what do I do with the application of the knowledge that I think I have? And isn't that our issue? The issue isn't so much what do I need to learn that I don't know. Our problem is rarely that we don't know what to do. Our problem is routinely that we don't know how to do what we should actually be doing. Rarely is knowledge enough to spur us to obedience. It's a matter of taking what we know and doing it. And the lawyer hits that on the the nose. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? And then the lawyer answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and with all your mind. And, because I'm a lawyer, I know this as well as written in there, you can imagine him still standing up, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, many lawyers, many lawyers at this time um, were um, priests who were off duty. The priests who studied the law and knew the law would in their off time from their priestly duties actually serve to execute the law 
within their community. So they served in the function of a teacher of the law, a lawyer, or a priest. They were all synonymous. I don't know if this man was a part-time priest or not. What I do know is that his colleagues would have been, that he would have worked with men who would have been priests, part-time lawyers, part-time experts of law, and teachers. They served both to understand the law and to execute the law and to kind of judge people on the law. And so it was very fitting that, that each um, role could be fulfilled in one person. And so here is this man standing up who's well-respected, who asks a question about what must I do and gives a smart answer. And the people around him are thinking, Look at this smart guy getting up and talking to Jesus. That was a smart answer. He really knows his stuff. After all, this guy memorized the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, most likely. He knows his stuff. So he answers this way. Love the Lord your God with all you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, verse 28, responded, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And the guy could have walked away. He could have walked away at that point and the story would have been over. But, verse 29, but he wanted to what? What are the next two words? He wanted to justify himself. That is so, that is so important for us to understand. He wanted to, to justify himself. And so he asked, and who, who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself. In other words, he knew that he knew the law. He knew what he knew. He asked the question that he already had an answer to. But wanting to justify himself, wanting to show that he is already obedient, and wanting actually to say, what are the things that I need to do, and what are the things that I don't have to worry about? What are the things that I should be careful to pay attention to, and where is it okay, and where can I get God's blessing not to care? Where are the places where I should be serving, and where is it okay that I kind of cut the corners and don't? And I just want to make sure that my life measures up to a standard, and so I want to justify myself. Now, a little more context is important for us to understand this. In this time, when he asks the question here, who is my neighbor? This was a debated question. To us, it sounds almost silly. But you need to understand, put on a little bit of a Jewish mindset, get, in, get into your little Jewish world for a minute. There was uh, Moses as uh, the, the historical figure in, in the people of the nation of Israel. He, he gave a speech to the nation of Israel. That speech is recorded in Leviticus 19. It rarely will we, as 21st century Christians spend time studying Leviticus, let alone Leviticus 19, which is really strange passage in many ways. But Leviticus 19, believe it or not, was almost like a rally cry for the nation of Israel. It was almost like the Gettysburg Address would have been for people who were anti-slavery during the time of the Civil War, a short, compact, but incredibly meaningful and representative speech related to values of a culture, and it set a tone. And so Leviticus 19 set a tone for all of the nation of Israel on this issue of what does it mean 
to love a neighbor. And in fact, who is a neighbor? So here, let me just pull it, an excerpt of this speech to you so you begin to understand what I'm talking about. In Leviticus 19, 16 to 17, Moses will say to the entire nation of Israel, do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. Continuing, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. The entire passage is set up to define neighbor as a fellow Israelite. Moses is speaking to the Israelites, and the entire passage is about how to care for your neighbor, which in Leviticus 19 is described as your fellow Israelite. And now, in the, in the, the common era, in the first century here, where this lawyer stands up, there is no longer the nation of Israel that, that has been uh, gathered the way it was during Moses' time. Now we have confusion. Because we have the Greeks who were strong, and they displaced us, and then we have some people still in Jerusalem, but we have influence from, from Greek marketing and economics, and we have some different kind of philosophical systems. We have some people who are displaced over here. In other words, we have people living among us who are not Israelites. This was not, when Moses was speaking, this wasn't happening, but it is happening now. And so the lawyer stands up and he wants Jesus to clear the air. Help me understand Leviticus 19. I want to honor God. I want to love my neighbor, maybe. But what I really want you to do is I want to know who is my neighbor. Because the law seems to indicate the people that I really need to care about are the people who are my fellow Israelites. And will you please tell me exactly who is my fellow Israelite, because my neighbor worships a different God. And my neighbor on the other side is from a different Jewish sect that doesn't get along with mine. Do they qualify as neighbor in Leviticus 19? And what about the people who don't even worship anything? They certainly don't qualify as neighbor. And so if I'm going to be religious and I'm going to be righteous, and I'm going to do the right thing before God... I want to make sure that I love my neighbor. So will you please clarify for me, who is my neighbor? And here's the assumption of the lawyer, that there are some people who I don't have to care about. And I just want to be sure that I care about the right people. There's some people who God kind of says it's okay that you don't care about them. It's a good thing that doesn't happen today. It did happen then. Comcast customer service representatives. In-laws. Nothing personal. Exes. People who have betrayed you. People who have taken your children in a different way of thinking and led them down a path that has changed their behavior and changed your family. A former teacher who abused you emotionally, mentally, maybe physically. There's certain people that because they're not righteous or because they've done things or because they've hurt me or because they don't believe the same way, there's got to be certain people 
that it's okay that I don't notice, that it's okay that God has kind of given me the blessing to say, you make sure that you care about the right people. And the lawyer stands up wanting to justify himself and wanting his life to be justified. He says, will you please clarify for me, because I know that I take care of the right people, but I just want to hear it from you. Believing that God will condone and bless you or me for ignoring people or whole groups of people. And so Jesus, understanding the heart of the lawyer, tells a story. He gives a picture. It's worth a thousand words. It's a story you know. The parable of the Good Samaritan. It's an incredible, profound story. And he begins it in chapter 10, verse 30. Read it with me. Even though you know it, we're going to track with it. In reply to this context, Jesus sitting there while the lawyer is still standing and people are respecting this lawyer, say this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Literally going down, by the way. Jerusalem was 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho, 800 feet below. That's about twice the size of the Welsh mountain all the way down. Maybe even a little bit further than that. So going down a long road, which was a dangerous road. He fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Here's why this is important. This man is now completely anonymous. If you were to walk across him now... You don't know what sect he belongs to. You don't know if he's a Jew or a Gentile. You don't know anything about him, and he is not identifiable in this story. He is simply a human being. It's an important piece that Jesus begins here. We don't know who this man is. And so all of these figures are just responding to humanity. They're responding to a human need of suffering and brokenness right here. And so here's a man, an anonymous man, who's been stripped of his clothes. Verse 31. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Oh, I'm sorry. Teacher of the law, were you a priest too? I, sorry, I didn't mean to start with you. Let me go to somebody else. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The priest and the Levites... Um, Similar story here behind this. You should just know this about the priests and the Levites. They were so respected that what, what they did was actually never questioned. Every now and then we know people like that who are so respected that we, don't, we think that they're so influential that whatever they do must just really be smart and I need to do what they do. We see this with, um, with fashion trends. Do you ever see a celebrity where something looks absolutely ridiculous? Just ridiculous. And a month later, like, all the kids are wearing it. You ever see that? Because they don't question, what, does that even look dumb? They're just like, wow. Like, they must, that must be, that defines reality. That defines coolness. So I'm going to wear that, even though, like, sensible humanity might say, seriously? Like, what do you think? Like, that doesn't go with whatever. But after a little while, what they do creates reality for everybody else. You don't actually question them because you just assume that they make all the right Decisions. This is the way priests and Levites are. This is why this is so important. The people respected the ancestry of the priests and Levites. So whatever they did defined reality. In other words, when the priest and Levite walk by an anonymous man beat up on the side of the road, it is therefore right for you to do the same thing. In fact, it would be wrong for you to help them because it would defile you. So this behavior is very important because their behavior is kind of above questioning. Their behavior creates reality. And this is what Jesus says, and it's really not a question because it would make sense. They would move away from that kind of defilement because we don't know who this man is. It could be that he's a 
Gentile. It might be that we would get dirty in the process. And then we go to the Samaritan, the story that we, we know, especially verse 33. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him, and he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him. He said, when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And this Samaritan, because you know the story, you know how generous this was. You know that he set himself up for financial exploitation. You know that he wrote a blank check to this innkeeper and said, I'm just going to sign my name on this thing and you fill out whatever number you think is right for the care of this man. Something actually I would probably never do. I don't know if you would or not, but I'm just being honest. I don't know if I'd ever actually do that or not give a blank check to someone I just met. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't do that. In this story, the Samaritan does that um, and, and says, let me put myself at risk this far to someone I don't even know who he is to take care of him because that's what we do for humanity. And then Jesus asks this um, question at the end, and he says, which of these three, verse 36, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and think likewise. Go and what? Go and do. And he returns, doesn't he, to the main controlling verb of this whole thing. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Don't, don't just go and change your thinking. Go and apply what you think you know. Go and do likewise. Isn't it interesting how Jesus changes the question around? Did you see the question the lawyer asked? He asked this question, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? You see the question Jesus asked him? I'm going to put it up here for you again. He asked the question, which was a neighbor? You see the difference, don't you, between the two? The one asks the question, who out here do I need to neighbor? And who is it okay that I don't neighbor? And Jesus points the question back, which of these is a neighbor? Which functions as a neighbor? Which of us functions as a neighbor? Which of us does the neighboring? Not who can I and who do I have to not neighbor? Incredible change and shift in perspective. And then he says that, go and, and do likewise. Go and do. Go and do that. Very profound, very profound change. Here's what I think Jesus is saying in some summary fashion. The people who really love me really love people. People who really love me really love people. In fact, people who really love me love all people because they are people who do the work of neighboring. The, the people who love me love everyone and, and to the point where they understand that there is no one who should ever be outside of the care of being a neighbor. It's very challenging because the implication of that goes here, and here's the next kind of point here. The people who really love people give up a right to be against them. The people who actually really love people give up the right to be against them. And that's an important point that I would just want to flesh out with you because we have certain rights, we believe, to be against certain people, right? We feel like it's okay in fact, we don't even think twice. I, uh, I don't think twice, truthfully. When I'm on the phone with a customer service rep from Comcast, all right, I, I don't even think of them as human sometimes. I mean, I know I'm talking to, you know, Shelly or Bob or Billy or whatever from Comcast, but I don't really begin to think. It's almost like I have a right to kind of be against them. You know, when I'm, when I'm dealing with um, people who have hurt me in the past, I justify myself in pulling back in relationship because I feel like I have a right not to be as neighborly to them 
as to people who haven't hurt me. Do you ever feel that? I, I feel like as a, as a neighbor, here's what Jesus is saying, that people who really love me, really love people, and people who really love people give up a right to be against them. They give up the right to say, you know what, my ex is such a, you know, bleep, 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 whatever, they did this to me, yeah. And therefore I have a right to be against them. My, my neighbor, literally, my neighbor is such a whatever because they did, and I have a kind of a right to be just against them. And what we can do, and I think you can relate to this because I think it's a human problem because I think the lawyer had this problem. I know I have this problem. I create a world in which there are some people who fit into a category where it's okay that I don't love them as much as I love other people who are easier to love. And that I kind of have a right, I have a reason why if they're on the side of the road, I'd kind of, I hope they're okay, boy, I hope somebody comes here soon, you know, look at them over there. But you know what they did to me? In fact, if I were to go to be with these people, they would make me a little impure. They, they curse a lot, all right, truthfully. They drink things that I don't drink. I, I can't go to their parties because they watch things that I don't watch. I can't have my kids involved with them because bad company corrupts good character, right? That's biblical, 1 Corinthians 15. I shouldn't even be around a hint of sexual immorality, therefore I need to pull out from involvement in anybody who has a hint of sexual immorality in their life. Therefore, I need to not be neighborly to them. And I have a right not to because God doesn't want us to be involved in any kind of sexual morality. God doesn't want us to be involved in any kind of behavior that's bad. Therefore, I have a right not to care about people who do that stuff because God doesn't. And isn't that what the lawyer says? Wanting to justify himself, who is my neighbor? Please clarify for me. I want to be pure. I want to be obedient. But I want to clarify. There are certain people, right? that it's okay that I don't get involved in, right? Jesus, clarify it for me, because I I know it's true. And Jesus asks the question a different way, not who is my neighbor, but which of these was a neighbor? And the lawyer answered correctly, the one who had mercy on him. And here's what the lawyer would know, that every time, every time that word mercy is used, every time that word compassion is used, it is always associated with action. In fact, it is impossible to have biblical compassion without action. There's no such thing as compassion that exists in the brain that doesn't exist in, in the hands and the feet. It doesn't work. Let me be clear on what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, as I was not saying last week, that we throw out wisdom in how we relate to one another. In other words, that we just carte blanche go and and uh, encourage our children to go to parties that we know are going to be sexually immoral. We just say, well, that's what Jesus would have done. There's wisdom to be applied in how we carry ourselves with one another. There's wisdom in parenting. There's wisdom in how we make choices. In other words, we don't have to throw ourselves full on, but the question is, do I still love people who Jesus would love? Do I, do I have a right to be against them? Do I feel like it's okay that I don't love as well? As a parable of the Good Samaritan says, not who is my neighbor, but which of these is a neighbor? And Jesus finishes with this incredible statement. He says, go, go and do likewise. Go and do. Go and do likewise. 
Don't go and think differently, but go and do. Go and apply what you already know the point of the Good Samaritan is. And isn't that our problem and our challenge? Not to see it for the first time, but to do it, to go and do. Can you imagine what would have happened if the priest and the Levite would have stopped? You ever think about that? Can you imagine if the people who defined spiritual reality for others at the time would have been the ones who were the heroes of the stories and not the goats? Can you imagine if the people who were seen as the most spiritual were the ones who were the most Samaritan-oriented, good Samaritan-oriented? Can you imagine what that would be like? And can you imagine what that would be like for you at work, in your family, here in our community? If the people who create spiritual reality, right, if the people who help kind of point to God are the ones who care the most and who really love people without having a right to be against anyone. Jesus' words come ringing loud and strong for me, and he says, go and do. Go and do likewise. Let's pray together. Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story that's been preserved for generations for us to stop and consider, a story that we know in our minds and we've heard countless times and we've told to our children or our grandchildren, we've shared and seen shared all across our years. I pray that its truth would come back to us again even this morning, that our behavior would be challenged, that as we think about the work week that we have upcoming, the people that we have blown by without really considering their story or why they're stressed or why they make the decisions they do, the people at school that we think it's okay that I don't sit with them ever at lunch and it's okay that they're by themselves in the corner because no one really cares about them anyway, the people in our family who are a little disenfranchised and maybe out there a little bit and everyone knows it and we all have kind of an agreement to not really engage with them because it's just too weird and hard. I pray that you would help us with courage with this story and this reminder to go and do likewise. Not just to go and think differently, but to go and do what we know we should do. It is incredibly hard to give up the right to be against certain people. But I pray that you would give us the courage, Father, to do what we know that we need to do. We thank you that you're a God who has given us a love that never does fail, that never gives up, that never, as this song will say, never runs out on us. And I pray that this truth from this song will be how we flesh out our love for our neighbor as we go and do likewise. In Jesus' name we pray.